And if you'd like to, you can turn in the book of Proverbs to chapter 7. A reading from God's Word is taken from Proverbs chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Lend your attention. This is the very Word of God. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching at the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayers. We ask his blessing on our time in scripture. Father, indeed, dark be the path, but in thy light we see. And the light of the world uh, who has stepped into the darkness and the darkness has overcome it, has not overcome it, Lord. And we rejoice uh, that in his light we see light. And that you have seen it fit to rescue us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of light, the beloved son. And we give you thanks that even now Christ is seated and instructing us as he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf, working even now uh, to impart wisdom by the blessed Holy Spirit, by the word which will outlast heaven and earth. So attend our hearts, attune our hearts, Lord, to your word. Humble us, uh, and grant to us uh, what can only come from you, uh, understanding and, and wisdom and insight. And the eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ and a heart uh, moved to take up the song of redemption. We ask that you do these things for the sake of the beloved son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So once more, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 50, but first I'll read the second commandment, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. This is the word of God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thus ends God's word. And then question 50 of the Westminster Shorter reads, what is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. 
And we've been considering the particular worship prescribed to us in God's word as we've uh, remarked each time that the second commandment has um, specified the manner of our worship or granted God, not granted God, demonstrated God's prerogative to require whatever worship he sees fit. That man is not granted the liberty to design the approach unto God. A man is not at liberty to design uh, the manner in which he approaches God. And we saw that above all, that this commandment finds fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can approach God except through the Son. It's worth noting that this commandment forbids images and Jesus Christ is the exact image of God. Now, man is forbidden creating images as a way to approach God, but God in his great grace and mercy has made a way for man to approach him by sending his image, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we now yield worship. But we're continuing to consider the particulars that fill our worship, uh, considering how gospel worship is, is simple, Uh, but that there's far more going on than meets the eye, and that gospel worship is fellowship with God. That gospel worship is saturated with God's word, from front to back, filled with God's word. Gospel worship is filled with prayers, as this wonderful access has been granted unto us, to the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, not as access to some nameless power, but the access that a child would have to a father as Christ leads us to pray our father who art in heaven. All of these things characterize our worship. They sit at the heart of our worship. They fill our worship. You're going to see all of these things in our worship. We're going to make two further observations. First gospel worship is song filled song filled. And second gospel worship is mystical. First, gospel worship is song-filled. We read it just in Psalm 9, didn't we? Sing. You find that call throughout the psalm. Sing. We read it this morning, Psalm 68. Sing. Sing. Don't just say, sing. Sing his praise. Sing his works. Sing his wonders. Before anything else, let's mark the gift of song. We sing so frequently that it might escape our notice that God commands us to sing. That song features prominently in our life of worship. You have to make the first initial distinction. Usually uh, you're coming from the evangelical church. You think, no, worship is song. No, worship is bigger than that. Worship is approaching God rightly in the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship in listening to God's word. We worship in praying. We worship in coming to the table. All of that is worship. It's public worship because we gather as the company of the redeemed. So the first thing we need to make sure is worship is bigger than singing. But we sing in worship. And this by God's design. Don't escape. Don't let that point escape you. We sing so frequently, we might miss the fact that we're not called just to rehearse the truth. We're not called just to speak the truth. We're called to sing the truth. And that's significant. 
Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly singing. There's richness that's reflected in song. The richness isn't just the richness of content because the richness of content is on display in the speaking of the word. Part of the richness is that it grips us at our very core. That seems to be the distinction between singing something and saying something. Is that fair? It seems to be a higher order of speech, or you might say a deeper register of expression. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly singing. There's a richness on display. Song is a gift from the very beginning, it seems. Song is as old as the earth. If you'll allow me to get a little bit poetical here at 2.15 in the afternoon as you doze gently to the dulcet tones of your pastor's voice (laughs) about song. (laughs) Job 38, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The angels sing. We don't know a lot about angels, but we know they love song. They sang there at the very outset of creation. Wow! I don't know what the song was. (laughs) But they didn't just declare amazing. They sang the wonder of what was on display. Tolkien and Lewis both get a little carried away with this. Aslan creates Narnia with a song. In the Silmarillion, Tolkien imagines Middle-earth being created with a song. That's not exactly what Job is saying there, but you get why they took it in that direction. It isn't that God created by song. It's that he created by a word, and what he created was so wonderful that it couldn't just be spoken. It had to be sung. His excellencies were so marvelous, so magnificent, that it doesn't suit it just to say it. I've got to sing it. If the epic of Troy is worth singing from generation and a generation and a generation, how much more the epic of creation? How much more the epic of new creation? If you think of the song of Adam... If popular interpretation is to be believed, Adam sang when he was given Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's a little poem, perhaps sung. He's standing in awe. He's singing not just at woman, (laughs) but of God's goodness on display, of the excellencies of his creator reflected in the wonder of the gift. And so he sings. And that's the pattern that we see. The excellencies of God's work on display must be sung. The excellencies of God must be sung because they transcend what speech can communicate. They need that deeper, higher register of majesty to adequately communicate. Think of the song of Miriam, the song of the sea. Think of the song... Of Deborah, after that victory over Sisera. The song of Moses, 
any number of the Psalms, which are rehearsing the wonders of God and so on and so forth, all surveyed the Magnalia Dei, the mighty works of God, (laughs) and all were moved to sing because of the excellencies therein on display. And it wasn't just because of the excellencies on display outside of them. We made this point briefly before. It was because what was on display intimately involved them. Israel is not just singing the wonders of some abstract display of power at the Red Sea. Wow, that's cool. No, they're singing a redemption song. A power displayed to bring them out of death into life. Out of slavery into freedom. Out of darkness into light. It's not just a wonder beheld. It's a wonder experienced and participated in which they're intimately involved by God's gracious design. And so they sing because he's wonderful and his works are wonderful. But it's not just the wonder that Israel sings. It's also the heartbreak. Michael Horton makes the observation that the church needs to learn how to sing the blue note. You read Israel's literature, you read her songbook in the Psalms, and you find that much of it is wrestling. Much of it is aching. Much of it is crying. Much of it is confusion. And you can see a parallel between these things. Not only has Israel been exposed to the wonders of God in salvation and redemption and grace, extended into them as the ill-deserving, but as those who see how good things could and should be, they're also uniquely positioned to see just how bad things are. And so there's a correspondent ache in her song as well, because not all is right, and she knows what things are like when they're right. Does that make sense? So the joy and the wonder on display in her hymns of praise finds its correlative into the ache when she experiences that not all is well. Sin continues to exert its influence. Rebellion continues to exert its influence. Things seem to be backwards as the wicked triumph and the righteous are defeated. And that hurts to a level that can't just be said. It needs to be sung. And so it should come as no surprise when I point out that what we sing is in part the Psalms. It's not just that we sing, but what we sing. And we sing the Psalms as God's people. It was one of the most lovely new experiences I had in coming into the Reformed faith was singing the Psalms. I think, I don't know, maybe you're not familiar with this practice. Maybe you're still not familiar. Maybe you wonder why I put Psalms in the liturgy each week. It's because God has made a rich provision for us in the Psalms. To lend voice 
to the experience of God's saints in this world, their experience relating to God, their experience relating to their own sin, their experience relating to a world of hope, joy, frustration, futility, defeat, victory, all of it is right there. And it receives a treatment from God's own hand. He says, sing this. I, I know it's going to hurt. I know what the highs are going to be like. I know what the lows are going to be like. I know what the frustrations are going to be like. I know what the joys are going to be like here. <laughs> this is going to help you as you wrestle with that. And so as a church, we avail ourselves of the rich provision of God in the Psalms. And it's a provision that's not just restricted to the content, but also to the concept that we are not the first person to take up these songs. And that's helpful for us. Think about it. Paul has to remind his churches of this. I think it's Paul. That you're not experiencing any temptation that isn't common to man. Paul? I'm looking at Pastor King. I think that's Paul. <laughs> Pastor King dozed off for a moment. <laughs> no temptation has, over, has overcome you that is not common to man. That's Paul. I'm confident now. What does it suggest? It suggests that we're prone to think that our trials are utterly unique. <laughs> no one has ever experienced this before. Naughty children. <laughs> An aborted effort in terms of a, a, a failed endeavor. No one's ever experienced these things before. Being wrongfully accused of something. Having to watch people who lie and cheat and steal succeed while I get passed over as somebody who's more interested in doing what's honest. Nobody's ever had to experience these things before. He's just wrong. People have been experiencing these things from the beginning of time, and God gives you a song for every moment of them. And it's not just that he gives you words there, but even in the provision and the reminder that, look, he's kept his people in these situations before. He's seen them through situations like this before. Even that very fact is of great encouragement to us. We're so hyper-individualistic. We're so myopic in these regards. We tend to shrink our world to our immediate problem. And the Psalms themselves has a way of saying, oh, this song has been being sung for a long time. This is not new. And just as they were kept... I trust I'll be kept too. So we avail ourselves of the rich gift that God gives us in the Psalms. So it's not just that we sing that's a wonder because of the excellencies of redemption and the heartache of a world of sin and misery. It's not just that we sing the Psalms, but it also should come as no surprise that we do not sing only the Psalms. We do not sing only the Psalms. We don't have a full exposition of why we don't sing only the songs, but I'll make two observations of why this church, as long as I'm pastor, will not sing only the songs. Mm -hmm. First, our church's life in song is really just another iteration of our church's life of prayer. And the songs that we sing are at their heart prayers. This is true of the Psalter. <laughs> it's absolutely true of the Psalter. Those are prayers. Those are sung prayers. There's adoration, confusion, supplication, thanksgiving. Every one of them 
As soon as you move beyond the category of prayer as simple request, which is not a viable definition of prayer anywhere. As soon as you move beyond that definition of prayer, you see, oh, the Psalms are prayers. You're speaking to God. This is most of them. Now, some of them include exhortations to the nations, exhortations to the heart, but a lot of them are wrestling with God and they're singing this prayer with God. So if the Psalms are prayers, songs, our life of song is a life of prayer. The question is, are we bound only to pray the words of scripture? No, we are not bound only to pray the words of scripture. Now make no mistake, we pray the words of scripture. You should pray the words of scripture. You should pray the Psalms. We pray the Lord's prayer as a particular prayer, but we do not only pray those words. The church's life is not to be only characterized by those words. Why? Because there's circumstances and needs and new occasions for new petitions, particular requests, new thanksgivings, particular praise to be ascribed. And the same reality is true of song. That it is an occasion for God's praise to take a new refrain in the light of his particular dealings with his people. Just as our pray, our praying will take on the particular contours of his particular dealings with us. Paul tells us to pray in the spirit. Pray in the spirit. He is not saying only offered inspired prayers. He says, praying at all times in the spirit, praying for me in particular, that I will be bold in preaching the gospel. So he clearly doesn't mean pray the scriptures there. He's saying pray particularly for me and these missionary endeavors and that prayer, make sure it is done in the spirit. So there's a spiritual dimension to the church's prayers. That's not inspiration. That's illumination. Is in the light of scripture, in the light of need that is supplied to us by that wisdom that comes down from above, which the Lord continues to minister to us. It is not insignificant, I think, that Paul says we're to sing spiritual songs. Pray in the spirit. Sing spiritual songs. Meaning what? Well, the same way that the spirit is at work in your prayers, granting wisdom in the light of his word, in the light of circumstances as spiritual prayers, the same reality is going to play out in your songs. In the light of his word, in the light of his providence and with the endowment of the spirit. Songs adorn the new covenant life. That's not even the most compelling point. The reason we don't sing only the songs, only the psalms, is because it confines our singing to the time of shadows. And Christ has stepped out into the light. Now make no mistake, Christ is present in the Psalter. Christ is present in the Psalter, but he's present in shadow. He's present in the same way that he was present in the temples, in the present in the sacrifices, in the present, present in the ritual laws. He's present in the Psalter, but he's present in shadow. To think that God commands that we keep our praise in the time of shadow plainly ignores the anticipation of his word 
generating expectancy for a new song. There's a new covenant that we're waiting for. There's a new creation that we're waiting for. There's a new song that we're waiting for. What's going to initiate all of this? The mediator. The Messiah. Think about the pattern that we've just observed. Work of God. Explosion of song. The greatest work of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. To think that hymns composed to him are forbidden is very difficult. Very, very difficult. It defies the plain anticipation of God's word to think that the climactic work, the work that excels creation in the God-man and the redemption of God's people would not be met with an explosion of this new song. And that's exactly what we find in Revelation. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on earth. It's a song to Christ. It's the new song. The Father says, all praise belongs to him. Church, you can be comfortable singing praise to Christ as we take up this new song. Gospel worship is song-filled, magnifying our God's faithfulness on display in the Psalms, but extolling the clarity of God's revelation and redemption, which has stepped out into the fullness of light in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we sing, He is worthy with all the plainness the Spirit is pleased to give us. And so we sing songs of praise. Second, and somehow just as controversial, gospel worship is mystical. I could have said gospel worship is wonderful, or gospel worship is mysterious. But the word mystical comes from Westminster Larger Catechism. What is the union which the elect have with Christ? They answer, the union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace whereby they are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably joined to Christ as their head and husband. When we talk about union, we're not far from talking about the sign of our union, which is baptism. And so what I really want to consider in this heading is the sacraments, but sacraments as a window into that mystery. There's a lot of talk about mystery these days, especially if you talk to people who've gone to the Eastern Orthodox faith or the, the Anglican faith or the, the Roman Catholic faith, uh, they'll bring the charge that there's, there's just not enough mystery in Protestant worship. There's just not enough mystery in Presbyterian worship. So we can make one observation first and uh, say that mystery is a biblical category. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1, uh, this is how you should regard me. 
uh, as a servant of Christ Jesus and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Okay, so mystery is a biblical category, but it's not working exactly like our friends who go to these other things want it to work. Because when Paul talks about mystery, particularly the mystery of God's will, he's talking about something that has been revealed. He's talking about something that nobody saw coming that can't be reasoned to left to man's own devices, but is now made plain. So when we talk about mystery, it has to have its roots in truth and revelation. (laughs) Paul sees no juxtaposition between what has been revealed as the wonder of God's purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ, namely taking a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not only that, the God-man. Not only that, the indwelling of the Spirit. (laughs) Not only that, that this is going to be universal in terms of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Those are the types of things that Paul references when he says the mysteries. So the first thing you would want to say to someone who's in love with mystery, you'd say, I am too, but it can't be at the expense of truth. It can't be at the expense of what is plain. The mystery isn't an utter trading upon the unknown. The mystery is seizing upon the clear and then gazing into an abyss of wonder because you can't comprehend it. Mm -hmm. Truth is important. The clarity of God's revelation as that which facilitates mysteries. We don't come to the signs, the sacraments, and wonder what's going on here. We come to the signs and the sacrament and go, how can that be what's going on here? That's mystery. It's not forfeiting understanding. It's saying, I don't comprehend. There's a difference between understanding and comprehending. Comprehension is mastery. But most people want to get rid of understanding. I hear people talk about these rites that they're engaged in in these other churches. There's no understanding. It's almost intentional obfuscation. The truth is what facilitates the experience of the mystery because it defies the imagination. The God dwells with us. That we are placed in Christ. That we come to this table and we sit at a meal with God. Somehow he sustains us as the spirit brings his life to bear upon our lives that we will take up the cup with him on the day that he returns. That's perhaps my favorite image. It's well known at this point that I think that everyone should learn how to enjoy wine so that they can particularly enjoy the table. (laughs) Because as soon as you enjoy wine, new dimensions of the table open up. And not just the act of wine in and of itself, but the context of wine, because the context of wine is always a meal. That's the best context of wine. 
And the best context of wine isn't just a meal, it's a good meal. The best context of a good meal is with family and friends. It's not one that you take in the quiet and isolation of your study. You're not Ron Swanson. A meal finds a layer of loveliness because of the goodness of the food, the goodness of the drink, and the loveliness of those with whom it is shared. Israel experienced this in a profound way. It's one of my favorite scenes. Uh, Exodus 24, we read, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. Coming off of Mount Sinai, that is remarkable. (laughs) Nobody touched the mountain. If anybody touches the mountain, they're going to die. Moses is clearly in awe of what transpires here because of the features that he notes. Notice the pavement, sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. A stilled sea. Stable. Water's not stable. Water's unruly. A translucent sapphire stone is quiet and stable. Peace. That's a stunning juxtaposition with fire, thunder, storm, ill at easedness, <sighs> tranquility. But not just that, he's amazed that they didn't die. <laughs> And he didn't touch them. He did not lay a hand on the chief men. Given the threats, anyone come near, they're going to die. This is wonderful. (laughs) How is this happening? And then there's food. Where did the food come from? Scripture doesn't say, but it's obvious. The Lord of the mountain provided it. It's a heavenly feast that he provided. There's a related picture in Isaiah 27, another one of my favorite images, where Isaiah presents the feast that the Lord prepares of well-aged wine, well-refined, of rich marrow. He says, come and eat. This is the feast that I am preparing for you. But then in the text, there's another portion. There's two meals, as it were. One of them, well-aged wine, well-refined, marrow, rich beyond consideration, and the other, death. The Lord swallows death, and he feeds his people on the richness of life that staggers the imagination. Put these two together. Would you believe If I told you that every week you enter into a clearer wonder than what those elders experienced. Every week you enter into a clearer wonder than what Isaiah envisioned. 
Isaiah saw the Lord somehow swallowing death. We understand the God-man, the eternal enter into time, the immortal become mortal to swallow death for us, and not death in the abstract, the wages of our sin, so that his wages of life could pass unto us. We see clearer than they did, and yet the wonder remains, doesn't it? Every week we experience something more wonderful than they knew on that mountain. If we don't see it, it's because we're little faith. There's plenty of mystery in our worship. Let it not be at the expense of truth. But let's not also mistake the possession of truth for comprehension. For we stand in awe at the saving purposes of God on display in the Lord Jesus Christ. As he brings us into his home and he feeds us at his table as his children. Let's pray. What wondrous love is this, O Lord, that we should be called children of God, and we are. We pray you would sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. Grant us this, O Lord, that we might hymn your excellencies. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.